I am, uh, so I'm Hannah Riley Bowles. I'm the research director here at the Women in Public Policy program where we are dedicated to closing gender gaps in the areas of economic and um, political, uh, economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. Um, I'm particularly excited to introduce our speaker this week, Jennifer Lawless, who is a professor in the Department of Government at um, American University. Um, Jennifer's work has been a point of discussion here at the Kennedy School, really all over the place. Jen, Jen, Jennifer's work, she wrote, she wrote a book, it, um, it Takes a Candidate, and then a follow-up book, It Still Takes a Candidate, <laughs> um, that was really about um, uncovering some of the reasons why women were more inhibited than men to run for office. Um, and um, that's really been very powerful, gotten enormous news coverage, has been very influential um, uh, from a scholarly perspective also. And we're just thrilled to have you back. So uh, just highlight some of your, um, Jennifer is widely published um, and she's currently the editor of Politics and Gender. Um, and she's, and, um, and she's going to be, uh, she's now, we're gonna hear now about your work from your forthcoming book, right? Becoming a Candidate? No, that's the, no. That's the previous? Yes. Okay. So this is more. So going beyond. So we'll, maybe you'll have to give us a teaser or two in the questions or something about the forthcoming book. Okay, great. So um, uh, we're delighted to please welcome you here to talk about uncovering the origins of the gender gap and political ambition. Thank so, you. Thank you, very much. Um, thank you very much uh, for having me. I should say, so Becoming a Candidate came out in 2012, I guess, and that's sort of why would anybody ever run for office, especially given the current political environment. Um, and so that doesn't focus exclusively on gender differences, but it focuses on the kinds of backgrounds and characteristics that lead to political careers. And so what I want to do today is present research based on a new survey that Richard Fox and I conducted. We received National Science Foundation funding two years ago to conduct a national survey of high school and college students. And so that's the focus of today's paper, and I should also tell you that the paper that I'm going to present just received a revise and resubmit at the American Political Science Review. So the reason I'm telling you this is because the things that they want us to do are mostly speculate on some of the findings we have. They understand the limitations of our data and that we're not going to necessarily be able to shed more light empirically. Um, but I've already done all the speculation that I know how to do, so I'm going to be relying on you in part to help come up with some of the additional ways to think about these findings, hopefully so that I can quell the reviewers' concerns and get published in APSR because that's my lifelong goal, and if I don't achieve it, it's your fault. So <laughs> I should just put that out there right, right now. Um, no pressure. <laughs> Strange, very sorry. I have another one here if you want one. <coughs> Can I just plug this in the machine? Uh, yeah. I'm just now one day. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Okay. Does it work now? There it goes. All right, now it's working. Sorry about oh, that. That's okay. Um, okay, so 
Just some basic background information. Everybody in this room probably knows that women are substantially underrepresented in U.S. politics, and it doesn't really matter what level of office we look at. When the 113th Congress convened last January, 80% of the members of the U.S. Senate were men, and this brought about major uh, media attention because women had really achieved that 20% mark. So we had really, really come a long way. Uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives, the numbers are worse. Currently, only five of the 50 states have male governors. 75% of statewide elected officials and state legislators are men, and nearly nine out of ten of the largest, uh, of the one, nine tenths of the 100 largest cities in the country have male mayors. In fact, 95 nations now surpass the United States in the percentage of women serving in the national legislature. And to put this number in perspective, when I started doing this research as a graduate student in 2000, the U.S. ranked about 57th. So the rest of the world has gotten it a little bit, and we kind of haven't. Now, there are, the good news is that there are some reasons that we no longer really have to explore when we're thinking about why we have so few women in politics. And perhaps the best news is that there's no systematic discrimination against female candidates either at the ballot box or in terms of fundraising receipts. Now, this is not to say that we can't all, off the top of our heads, come up with a list of 15 women who probably faced some degree of bias. But when you look systematically at congressional election returns and at state legislative election returns over the course of the last 30 years, women who run for office do just as well as their similarly situated male counterparts. There's also new research that Danny Hayes at George Washington University and I have done to indicate that the local print media also tend to treat women and men the same way. Despite a lot of attention that would suggest otherwise, at least in congressional races where local print media are the main source of information for voters, we've reached a point where women and men are equally likely to be t discussed in terms of their confidence, their leadership, also their integrity and their empathy. Um, and they're also no more or less likely than one another to garner appearance coverage, right? So we hear a lot about this. It might be the case at the presidential level, not so much at the congressional level. There have also been barriers to women's candidate emergence because women traditionally haven't worked in the professions that tend to lead to political careers. So for many, many decades, the assumption was that that was why we had so few women in office. The good news on that front is that women now actually do occupy positions of leadership in theater professions like law, business, education, and political activism. So they do have the background credentials to help them run for office. And incumbency was also seen as a major barrier to women's presence in politics. The overwhelming majority of incumbents are men. The overwhelming majority of incumbents seek re-election. And then even more than the overwhelming majority of incumbents win re-election. So if women aren't included among the ranks of these incumbents, it's going to be difficult for them to make major progress. Of course, some studies have indicated that term limits at the state legislative level, which were seen to be a way to combat incumbency, didn't actually generate more female candidates or more women in positions of political power. So these were sort of the central explanations for why we had so few women in politics. And you can sort of assess the extent to which you think each of them carries weight. But what Richard Fox and I have done over the course of the last 12 or 13 years is argue that political ambition is also a central reason for women's underrepresentation. And what we did was focus on thousands of women and men who are well-matched professionally and educationally, who on paper you would not be able to tell apart. Lawyers, business leaders, educators, and political activists. Because these are the four professions that most likely lead to state legislative and congressional careers for men and women, for Democrats and Republicans. And what we found, both doing national surveys of these people, thousands and thousands of them, in 2001 and 2011, was a substantial gender gap in political ambition. 
women were less likely than men to consider running for office. They were less likely to run for office. They were less likely to think they were qualified to run for office. They were less likely to be recruited to run for office. And women were far more likely than men to perceive an electoral environment that was biased and competitive. So when I opened by saying that when women run for office, they fare just as well as their male counterparts, the importance of that empirical reality is probably not as important as the perception that there is a ton of bias against female candidates, right? So if you think that you're going to have to be twice as good to get half as far, you might be less inclined to say, yes, this is something that I'd like to do, sign me up. Okay, but the problem here is that we don't really know where the gender gap in political ambition comes from. The contribution that we've made up until this point has been identifying that this gender gap exists and suggesting that patience is not necessarily a virtue because women and men who are well situated and comparable to each other are not thinking about it the same way, not thinking about running for office. So we're going to probably need to do something more to generate um, women's interest. But it doesn't tell us really anything about where the gap comes from. And we would say that understanding the origins of this gap are pretty important for a few reasons. First, the 2011 study found that the gender gap in potential candidates' ambition exists even among the people who were under the age of 35. Our 2001 study found that when we broke the sample down into cohorts, the gender gap in political ambition was actually largest among the people under the age of 40. So this suggests that attitudes about running for office are already well implanted by the time women and men are working in the professions from which political candidates emerge. But these cohort analyses are based on pretty small samples, so we are very limited in what we can say about where the gender gap comes from, because the overwhelming majority of the people in these samples are in their 50s or their 60s, which is what we would expect of your typical potential candidate. So we can't do that much to understand the origins of the gap by focusing on people who already work in these professions. And so we decided that we need to study young people, and for three basic reasons. The first is that there's a ton of political science research about the importance of political socialization. And we know that the formative experiences you have as a child, as a teenager, and even as a young adult affect a wide variety of political attitudes, party identification, political activism, your specific views on a series of policies. Despite a lot of research on political socialization, all of that literature stops short of examining political ambition. So we did a very exhaustive canvas of pretty much every survey that's been conducted by political scientists, sociologists, psychologists that have asked young people questions about their political attitudes, their political beliefs, and their political participation. And in no case were we able to uncover questions that tapped into their political ambition or whether they wanted to run for office. Theoretically, though, there's no reason to expect that political ambition is that different than these other political attitudes. So understanding how they're formed, when they're actually being formed, could provide us with quite a bit of leverage to answer these questions. The second reason is that it turns out that high school and college students' career goals map pretty well onto what they ultimately do. It's not to say that it's a perfect mapping, but it is to say your general field or your general area of interest tends to be pretty consistent across the board. And so if the gender gap in political ambition is established at the time that you're thinking about what it is that you want to do when, you're gonna, when you graduate and you're an adult later in life, then it's important to focus on when that's happening. And then finally, there are a lot of problems relying on adults' retrospective assessments of their upbringings. So all of the research that exists about political ambition has been conducted on adults, mostly of candidates and elected officials, 
all of whom by definition had political ambition. But even potential candidates, it's these adults who then reflect back on the importance of their childhood. So we found, for example, that people that report growing up in a politicized household were more likely to say that they were interested in running for office. The problem, though, is motivated reasoning and a variety of misattribution biases. So for example, I tell everybody that I grew up in a very politicized household, and my parents asked me where I grew up because they do not remember it that way at all. They know that today we talk about politics all the time, but they're pretty convinced that that is not what had happened a long time ago, but I remember some very compelling conversations, and I've extrapolated to me that that's what dinner was like every single night. Um, given that I was a child and they were adults, their recollection is probably more accurate than my own. But if we're going to sort of assume or test the importance of a politicized upbringing, we should probably have some confidence that it's happening. And asking people about it while they're living in those households is a pretty good way to do it. So we applied to the National Science Foundation when they were still funding research that was important and not about social, uh, not about uh, security studies. And as a result, we were able to get um, enough money to conduct a national survey of roughly 4,200 high school and college students. So this was an internet, it's an online survey that was conducted by GFK, which was formerly Knowledge Networks. They have an excellent panel, and a, among the 60 or 70,000 people in their panel, they also have a national random sample of parents who gave blanket consent for their children to participate in surveys. Now you might be wondering, who are these people? But it turns out they're pretty, they're pretty equally distributed across the range too. They're not systematically different than the parents that opted not to give consent. Um, Knowledge Networks then supplemented um, with a panel of college students. Some were in their own panel, some they got outside and they balanced. But we wind up with more than 1,000 people in each of our categories, so high school boys, high school girls, college women, and college men. And we're able to look at gender differences in political ambition at a very early time. Um, we conducted this last October, and it turns out that the men and the women in the sample were comparable in age, race, region, uh, religion, and income. So any of the differences that we uncover can't be attributed to just sort of different differences in their life circumstances in general. So let me just show you some of the, yes. How much, how comparable is this sample to the nationwide population? So, so it is, an, it is, um, it does approximate the national population. Um, so the high school students look like, it's a national random sample of high school students. Um, and for the college students, it's the same thing. I will note that the data that I'm about to present, we asked the high school students if they planned to go to college. 85% of them said that they did. Obviously, they won't all, but the data that I'm going to present from the high school students are restricted to the 85% who said they planned to go to college because at this point, virtually every elected official at either the state legislative or federal level has a college degree. So we're trying to approximate political ambition among the people that would be likely at some point to find themselves in the candidate eligibility pool. Okay, so some basic data. The first question we asked, have you ever thought that someday when you're older, you might want to run for political office? Uh, the green bars are women, the blue bars are men. Let me note right off the bat that uh, levels of political ambition are pretty low. And that's not that surprising. If you look at current polls, 50% of people now believe that if we got rid of everybody in Congress and created a random sample of 435 Americans, Congress would function better than it currently does. <laughs> That's actually a true story. 60% 60, 60 of Americans believe that every single member of Congress, including their own incumbent, should be fired. 
Congressional approval is, is at an all-time low. I always tell my students that it's virtually impossible to get more than 90% of Americans to agree to, any, to anything. Nope, you can, you can surpass 90% when you're talking about disapproval of Congress. Um, and it's not only Congress. Levels of government trust, government efficacy, levels of approval for the president are very, very low. So these baseline numbers are certainly grounded in the political reality that people operate in. But even among this, if you think about, have you ever thought about running for office many times, we see that the men are almost twice as likely as women to say that they have thought about it many times. And if we look at the never thought about it, the 65 to 53 percentage point comparison gap means, that translates to mean that men are about 20 percent less likely than women to say that they've never thought about it. So in terms of these retrospective assessments, even given generally low levels of interest in running for office, we uncover a pretty substantial gender gap. The same is true when we ask the question, even if you've never thought about it, how likely would you be to run for office someday? Again, the definitely's are very low, but there is a notable gender gap among them. And for the nevers, women are 50% more likely than men to say, no, that's something I would never do. Now, you might be thinking, okay, these are high school and college students. You're asking these vague questions. Have they ever really even thought about it? What are they comparing this to? So we also asked them two sets of questions that tapped into other hypothetical professions to see where politics fared relative to these other professions. So the first was, if each of the following jobs paid the same, what would you most like to be? Business owner, teacher, mayor, or salesperson? And um, although more people would like to be mayors than salespeople, which, I mean, I guess normatively is good, uh, the business owner and teacher numbers exceed interest in being a mayor by large margins. The other thing I would note is if we break the high school and college subsamples up here, and I'm going to show you some of those data as we proceed, more female college students chose salesperson than mayor. I know, that's when everyone's like, oh, it's just like this terrible, okay. Um, if the following jobs pay the same, which would you most like to be? These are higher echelon positions, so business executive, lawyer, principal, member of Congress. Again, everybody would prefer all of the options more than they would prefer being a member of Congress, but the 16 to 10 percentage point gap for mayor of Congress is also pretty, um, member of Congress, is pretty uh, important. So no matter how we measure political ambition, whether we're talking about retrospective interest in running for office, prospective interest in running for office, or a series of scenarios where we ask them to choose a career, what we see is a pretty substantial gender gap in political ambition. So you can say that you don't like one measure. You can even say that you don't like all four measures. But they're all trending in a direction that suggests that the gender gap in political ambition is, in fact, well established before people enter the careers from which candidates tend to emerge. And we now have data that's showing that this is the case from people at that time in their lives, not asking them to think retrospectively about it. So why is this the case? And to shed light on why we think that there is this gender gap in ambition and how it emerges, we use political socialization as a framework. And we do this for two reasons. The first is that, as I mentioned, socialized attitudes tend to play a big role in your political behavior. So there's no reason to think that that wouldn't also affect whether you have interest in running for office. The second is that political socialization often is gender. And the messages that are transmitted to you, not only by your family, but also by your educational system and your peers and the media, can reinforce traditionally gendered messages. So this broad framework, which we're going to operationalize in five different ways, suggests that it might provide leverage not only for telling us who's interested in running for office, but also for accounting for the gender gaps that we uncovered among those people. So we have five central expectations. Let me just go through each of them quickly. Um, the first is, I'm sorry, I have to move back over here because of the glare. But sorry, I was blocking that. 
Okay, so the first is family socialization. We know that what your parents tell you tends to matter. There's been a large literature, for example, to suggest that party identification is learned at mommy's knee, right? So you're three years old, your mother tells you that you're going to be a Democrat, and all is well. And that's the end of the story. Or your mother, t I, sh I should be nonpartisan, your mother tells you that you're going to be a Republican, all is well, and that's the end of the story. Um, and so we know that that's sort of how political attitudes are uh, transferred, or at least a large portion of them are transferred that way. We also know, at least from adults, and obviously we should be careful about how we interpret those survey responses because of motivated reasoning, but we know from adults that women are less likely than men to report having grown up in those kinds of households. So that would suggest that your family upbringing affects your likelihood of thinking about running for office, but also that women are going to be less likely than men and high school girls are going to be less likely than boys to have those kinds of experiences. And so we included on the survey a series of measures to tap into this. Did your parents ever suggest that you run for office? Did anybody else in your family, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a sibling, ever encourage you to run for office? How politicized is your household? We asked this in a series of creative ways. We asked, for example, how often do your parents yell at the television set about politics? We asked how often when your parents' friends come over do they talk about politics? How often do your parents put up a lawn sign when there's an election? So sort of things that they might, that, that the respondents, especially at a young age, might not think of as overt political activity, but they're the kinds of amorphous things happening in your household that could pew you in to think about politics. And then also, what kinds of political activities and discussions do you have with your parents? Like, do you go with them when you were younger or even now, do you go with them to vote? Things like that. So that's the first expectation. The second expectation is about this broader political context, and this takes into account experiences with your peers at school and with the media. So other key socializing agents that we know tend to generate more interest in politics, more interest in political leadership, um, although again, those studies stop short of studying ambition. Uh, and we also know that women are less likely to navigate these environments. So when you look at media habits, for example, data from Pew indicate that women are less likely than men to navigate to political websites. Well, if we think that that's where a lot of information about politics is being transpired and transmitted, then the fact that women are less likely to navigate these environments could account for that gender gap. So we measure this in a series of ways, too. We ask them about how often they talk about politics in their classes or with their friends. What are their leadership activities at school? What are their other extracurricular activities? And do they have leadership roles in them? Um, did a teacher ever consider that they run for office? What types of political activities did they engage in in high school? Uh, and then finally, how much time do you spend on political websites? I should note, by the way, that these students we've gauged, um, almost all of these questions are relative to lots of other things they could be doing. So the website activity, for example, uh, we ask them how often do they spend time on the web. We then also give them 10 or 15 different categories of types of sites that they might be navigating. And so uh, we've culled some of those specific questions from, from these broader batteries of questions. Jennifer, uh, my first question actually is how would you like to run the seminar? Do you invite questions during the talk or would you like to go through the talk first? Um, I, I'll, it's probably only like 10 more minutes, so I can just show all the findings and then do that. Let me talk. Okay, fine. Is that okay? Yeah, okay. I'll my question. Um, Okay, so we would expect that this would work the same way as family, where these things are going to either depress or spur political ambition, but at the same time, there could be a gendered component. Finally, uh, third, we have the competitive experiences expectation. Competition reinforces a lot of politically relevant traits, right? Like when you run for office, that's actually a competition. We also know from a broad array of studies that women are less likely than men to embrace competition or to exude confidence when competing. And so, 
here we think that women are going to be less likely than men to embrace these competitive experiences, not only because they're less likely to have access to them. Title IX, for example, has brought much attention and a big improvement to women in sports, but it hasn't leveled the playing field yet. Um, and so we measure competitive experiences in a way that would be relevant for high school and college students. We tap into whether they've ever run for student government, as well as whether they've played sports and how competitive they are when playing those sports. Uh, the, fourth ex the fourth expectation is self-confidence. We know from adults that women are less likely than men to think they're qualified to run for office even when they have the same qualifications. We know from other studies outside of political science that women are less likely than men to exude confidence in general when they're competing, especially in male-dominated domains. There's a great, I, one of my favorite studies is about game show performance and women's performance on Jeopardy ultimately works to their detriment because they don't play the whole board. Right, so they focus first on sort of women's issues categories. Um, even though they wind up wagering the same amount as men, they don't give themselves an equal opportunity to access these opportunities to get daily doubles and win, et cetera. Um, fourth grade girls and boys also demonstrate similar self-assessments. So we have a series of measures. Um, we would assume that anybody who thinks they're qualified to be a candidate at some point in the future, and we ask this question by saying, you know, when you graduate from high school and college, do you think that you'll know enough someday maybe to run for office? We think that anybody who says yes to that is going to be more inclined to run for office. But we think that women are going to be less likely than men to say yes to that question. Um, and we also gauge the, uh, their self-assessments on a variety of things that we would think were politically relevant skills and traits. And then the final fact that we, the final thing that we um, operationalize is a gender roles and expectations, uh, gender roles and identity expectation, where we think that people that grow up in households with more traditional roles are going to be more likely, if they're women, to embrace those kinds of traditional roles. So if you grow up in a household where your father's the primary breadwinner and your mother still does most of the housework, you might be less likely to think of yourself as a future candidate. We, in addition to asking questions like that, we also asked questions that would tap into traditional gender roles in a way that would make more sense in their lives. So we asked, for example, uh, the extent to which they disagree or agree with it in a statement such as it's okay for a girl to ask a boy out on a date, right? So we didn't want to only do sort of like the traditional division of labor. We also wanted to get at overall egalitarian attitudes. The counter to that, of course, is that we would expect if you have a lot of female role models or female mentors in your lives and you're a woman, that might mitigate some of these traditional expectations because you see women operating in an environment in a non-traditional way and you might be inspired by them. So we gauge those also. So let me just go through the central findings. So we have three central findings that I want to discuss. The first is, lo and behold, political socialization is, in fact, a good framework by which to study political ambition. We find, regardless of how we measure ambition, whether we're doing it on this four-point scale from not at all interested all the way up to definitely interested, or just yes or no, we dichotomize it, it turns out that all of our expectations, with the exception of the gender roles and identity expectation, provide explanatory power. And let me caveat very briefly by saying that I understand that all five of these expectations are correlated with each other and that there are complex causal relationships between and among them. Almost all political socialization literature succumbs to a similar limitation, and we're really limited in what we can do about that. So I'm going to show you the independent effects of each of these expectations, but the broader point is that Together, they explain a lot about who would be interested in running for office, and that's more important for our purposes than it is determining which one is more important than another. So here are four quadrants. These are um, based on regression equations that I can show you. 
where each quadrant is a different part of the subsample. So we have high school boys, high school girls, college men, and college women. The bars represent the explanatory power conferred by any one explanation. So let me just give you one example. If you look, the first bar in each quadrant is the family expectation. The .43 means that all else equal, setting all of the other expectations aside, people who score very, very high on the statistically significant factors that contribute to the family roles expectation are about 43 percentage points more likely than those who score at the minimum values of that expectation to say that they're interested in running for office. Well, I just want to, for clarification, when you said you put all the others aside, you mean controlling yes. for all the others? Yes. So the, the regression equation is the marginal. Yes. So the regression equation controls for all of the variables in each of the explanations plus whether they're part of the high school or college sample, their sex, as well as all of the um, demographic differences, even though there were no gender differences on them, we control for the demographics because those things obviously could affect ambition in general. Now, the important thing to keep in mind here, too, is that regardless of the level, of, regardless of the sample or the age group, the same kinds of factors are conferring relatively similar independent effects. The second main finding here is that the sex, the coefficient on sex, is never statistically significant. So what we've done is demonstrated that these, these expectations actually account for the gender gap in political ambition that I showed you. But that does not mean that sex is irrelevant. Because women and men, it turns out, are not actually equally likely to benefit from these kinds of experiences that do spur ambition. So let me just give you a couple of examples, 10 examples here. So these are the men and the women in the sample. And here, for each of the expectations, I just took one of the variables. So for example, family socialization expectation. At least one parent suggested running for office. 35% of men had a parent suggest they run for office compared to only 28% of women. Uh, very competitive when playing sports. 41% of the men in the sample say they're very competitive playing sports compared to only 32% of the women. So even if the women and men are arriving at their political ambition the same way and relying on the same factors, they're not equally likely to possess the same ingredients. So what this means is if we go back to this figure, I then calculated the baseline probability that somebody in each of these groups would say that, yes, they've thought about running for office. But embedded in these probabilities, when I was setting everything equal to their means, were the means for each of these subsamples. So what we see here is that the average high school boy, when I plug into the equation and set everything at its mean, has about a 0.25 likelihood of saying, yeah, I've considered running for office. A high school girl's probability is 0.22. So that's a three percentage point gender gap, which is statistically significant when you take that into account, but it's not huge. If you look at the college men, their baseline probability is 0.36. For college women, it's 0.21. So college women and high school women look about the same. So their political ambition is pretty much level across the board. When guys get to college, it goes up substantially. And so the reason it's going up substantially is because we're seeing changes on these ingredients. So let me go back and explain. When I showed you the comparisons between the men and the women overall in the sample, all of those differences at the aggregate level were statistically significant. Look now, the middle panel, which is in green, are the high school boys compared to the high school girls. There are hardly any differences there. Visiting political websites and playing sports, yes. But on the other eight indicators, the boys and the girls are similarly situated. When they get to college, on every single measure, you've got, those, every, you've got statistically significant gender differences that work to women's detriment across the board. And so what we see here is that 
it's not sex per se that's making women less likely than men to be interested in running for office. It's that the women, as high school girls a little bit, but certainly once they get to college, are far less likely than the men to possess the ingredients and to have the kinds of experiences that correlate positively with running for office. And that leads to the third and final finding, which is we're beginning to at least understand when this gender gap in political ambition materializes. It doesn't seem that it's a big deal when they're in high school, which suggests that family socialization is not really the problem here. It's a little bit of a problem, but it's when they get to college that we see this big divide. We also asked the college students to report on their upbringings when they were in high school, just so that we could make sure that the college and high school samples weren't entirely different from one another, and they're not. So on all of the things that we could balance them on, they were indeed balanced. Something seems to be happening. The shackles come off, you go to college, and men and women have different interests. And we think it's for two reasons. The first is their interests begin to divide, uh, diverge. Men were 10% more likely than women to have taken a political science class. They were twice as likely to join college Democrats or Republicans. Right? So just off the board, they get onto a college campus, and when you have the flexibility to choose how you want to spend your time, the men and women are choosing that those activities differently. Part of the reason that we think that this is happening is because when you're in high school, a large part of your extracurricular life is geared toward getting into college. You're competing with men and women to get into college. Your parents are encouraging you to get into college, which suggests that maybe you're doing things whether you want to do them or not, you're doing them because you want to have the best possible resume that you can. Once you're in college, you have choices. And maybe you don't have to continue doing that community service project that was politically motivated because you didn't care about it. You got admitted to college. Men also navigate toward more competitive experiences in college. 38% um, of men compared to 26% of women play varsity sports. And there was also a very substantial gap in terms of playing intramural sports. Now again, part of this is Title IX related. The intramural sports component, though, certainly would not be. So the first thing that we see is that interests diverge. And that is something that separates the college sample from the high school sample. The second is that career interests narrow. We asked people an open-ended question, what do you want to be when you grow up, pretty much? Twice as many high school students left that question blank, which makes sense, right? They're less likely to know what they want to be when they grow up. There were no gender differences, by the way. It was just that high school students were less likely than college students to identify it. We then also gave them a list of more than 20 jobs for the future. We gave everybody this list and said, which of these might you ever want to pursue? And college students were 15% more likely than high school students to check off only one job. This is important not only because they've narrowed their career interests, but among college students, we also see much more gender stereotyping in terms of jobs. So we asked people, do you think that a man or a woman would be more likely or more successful in probably 20 different positions? And it's among the college students, not the high school students, where we see uh, gender segregation. So what does this mean? We'd argue that the primary agents of socialization matter a lot for generating interest in running for office. They also account for a large portion of the gender gap. And they begin to shed light on what factors matter once you, when you are young versus when you are a little bit older and you have choice. Your parents' roles and responsibilities, for example, don't seem to play a role. And the way that they encourage you to run for office doesn't necessarily matter when you're in high school. By the time you get to college, these kinds of factors, we begin to see a gender divide. Um, the other thing I would note is that the gender gap in ambition is likely to persist because we also found that women and men have similar senses of civic duty and goals for the future. 
So they were equally likely to say that they wanted to get married, have children, earn a lot of money, but also, and perhaps most importantly, improve their communities. But they reported very different ways of doing so. So women were 40% more likely than men to say that if they wanted to improve their communities, they thought the most effective way would be through charitable endeavors. Men were 50% more likely than women to say that if they wanted to improve their communities, they thought the most effective way would be through politics. And so it's not that women are not interested in society. It's not that women aren't interested in changing the world. It's that men and women, especially in college, are still being socialized or are still selecting activities that reinforce the idea that the acquisition of political power is much more feasible for men than for women. The final point that I would make regarding all of this is that Part of this could also be reinforcing, I don't want to say that family is irrelevant, because it could also be reinforcing your children's interests once they develop their own interests. So for example, you have always encouraged your sons and daughters to do the same thing. They get to college, your son decides that he wants to get into politics, you encourage him to run for office. Your daughter decides that she wants to work for an NGO, you encourage her to work for an NGO. So it's not that parents are necessarily, or schools, or teachers, or professors, are squelching women's political ambition. It's that they're actually encouraging them to pursue the kinds of things that they want to pursue. But men are more likely than women to self-select into these kinds of political professions, political careers, or political activities. So if we want to close that gap, it suggests that we need to do a little bit more um, in terms of specific interventions and in terms of actual um, activities, because just leaving things the way they are, we're probably going to continue to see um, see a gap. And then I have variables and regression results that I'm happy to show. I don't think this quote is behind your story, but given that you asked everyone at the same time, now you can't really know that this is not reflecting something that would just happen in a couple of years. But the people you asked in college, that they didn't display the same characteristics in high school, and then the people you asked in high school now, that they are not going to be different from the current college students. Are you planning, do, do you have access to the sample also in the future? Are you planning to revisit the same high school students and ask them in college to see if any, if there is anything of that going on? And can you speculate a bit about it? Yeah, let me answer, let me respond to this in a couple of different ways. The first is that um, we also analyzed all of the data by age. So we have 13 to 25 year olds. The we, we group the 13 to 17 year olds together, not because they happen to be in high school, but because there was virtually no difference between 13, 14, 15, and 16 and 17 year olds. We group the college students together also because basically what we're seeing is a you walk on the college campus effect. There were no differences in terms of freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors. And so given that the freshmen and the seniors in high school we're just as different from each other as the seniors in college and the 13-year-olds. Mm -hmm. We're not necessarily that troubled. I, I think you raise a really good point, but we're not that concerned that there's this effect that we're not tracing. Um, obviously, panel data would be great, and we would love it. And with a gazillion dollars, we might have access to these people <laughs> again. Um, but you know, we think that we can, with cross-sectional data, tell a story that's at least somewhat compelling. The other thing that I would note is we did use, so the, the book Becoming a Candidate does rely on panel data. We surveyed 4,200 potential candidates in 2001, and then we resurveyed about 80% of them in 2008. And 
There was there were substantial individual level shifts in interest in running for office, but no aggregate level change. The gender gap in ambition stayed exactly the same size, and neither me and men and women were equally likely to either become more or less ambitious. And so we, I would say that that also suggests that although there could be some changes over time, it's not going to systematically affect the results. The final thing that I would note is that on every measure that we could, when we compared the high school students to the high school students, there was nothing to suggest that they were fundamentally different or that the results were driven by the sample. And in fact, if you're a freshman in college and we ask you to reflect on your life growing up, it's three months later than if you're a senior in high school. A freshman in college is three months later than a senior in high school. So the motivated reasoning and other kinds of misattribution biases that I mentioned would be less of a problem here for recall. So again, it's not a perfect situation, but I think that the dynamics going on here probably are not just an artifact of a crummy sample or the high school students now are fundamentally different than the college students and when they get to college, we're not gonna see any shift. I was curious in terms of the pool of individuals, the high school students I presume are all US. Mm -hmm. Since colleges are international in their population of whether or not any of the effect is the difference of the demographic within the sample or whether they were all US as well. They're all US citizens. I wanted to follow up on your answer here and just for clarification. So basically it's stepping onto the college campus. That's the difference. <laughs> no, seriously, yeah. because the reason why I'm asking that is because one argument would have been, right, that college is a gendered experience, right? Colleges are gendered institutions. They're primarily male faculty, the sponsors of clubs of male, blah, 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 right? So then you would see the female, the women's colleges versus men's. But you're saying it's actually going to college that makes a difference. Yes. So it means that there's something about that experience that changes the way women see themselves. No, it changes okay. the way men see themselves. Okay, so so women's answer. ambition is flat, flat, right? Men all of a sudden realize they can take on the world. So I would elaborate here by noting that when we first saw these results, we thought, oh, we've got a freshman dorm effect. Like, no one's yeah. going to believe that, right? Like, what? But then it turned out it's not a freshman dorm effect because we also know whether they live at home or not. It doesn't matter. It's the freedom we think conveyed, con conferred by choice in your curriculum, by choice in your life, by extracurricular activities, by the fact that even if you're still living in your parents' house and you're in college, there, there are studies, you know, in education policy, for example, that suggest that the role and the interactions you have with your parents even change. And so it's one of those situations where we're hoping to be able to make the case that these choices then allow any gender gap that might have existed that had not been able to flourish to flourish, right? So we're not saying you step on the campus and all of a sudden you become a different person, but you step on the campus and you have freedom to pursue the kinds of things that you may have always wanted to pursue and can't. Can I just follow up on this point though, because it's, it's very important if you if you say like, if you look at like the psychological literature on personality, right? So if you give people a more um, a, a weaker and a weaker, what we call like strong versus weak conduct, like if you, if you give people put them in a situation where they're less constrained and they're able to enact more of their individual preferences, we would anticipate their personality to come out more. So your results could be explained by like individual differences between men and women in terms of their preferences. But I, I think that this point is really important. I think that you could, you could just as equally make a contextual argument at a couple of levels. One is that the campuses are gendered. So it's not that 
actually there are individual differences that are flourishing in the presence of choice, but rather that they're entering an environment that is shaping their presence and their expectations. Right. And there's a lot of discussion also about like why women who are in comparable um, leadership roles to men entering like elite universities, this has been looked at, end up not commanding you know leadership roles in elite, um, and not just around political stuff, but in, in all sorts of elite right. institutions within those. And one. One issue for that, beyond the gendered character of the university environment, is that the marriage market kind of comes into play when they get into college. And so gender roles are that much more salient um, uh, when, you know, at that age group, because it is suddenly now much more plausible that you might marry these guys, um, and vice versa. You know I mean? But the, but the, so, that, so gender roles become heightened. Right. I, I think that's right, and that's actually, um, that's a great point, and we can incorporate that in. The, the trouble that we've had with that kind of argument, though, is, and, and I, I fundamentally believe it, too, but we would have, I would have liked the data to demonstrate a widening gap, right? So because if the college campuses are gendered and you're navigating that experience, then the longer that you're there, possibly we would expect to see longer effects. But I mean, you don't, that's not necessarily required, right? Like, it's not a prerequisite. Can I take you back in your data, though? Yeah. Like, so... <laughs> when I don't understand, or like, you've got something like 33% of, maybe I've got it wrong, but this is it here. So 32% of college girls report at least one parent suggested running. I mean, you're not seeing, I mean, I guess it's 18 versus 23%. I mean, are you seeing, that's the comparison, I guess, that you'd want to have. Are you seeing socialization experiments and experience and stuff like that shifting for college men? Um, more than for college, so like, so I mean, so go to like go to your family socialization. Mm -hmm. I, I don't understand why thirty-two percent of girls can claim that one parent suggested running high school girls, but then twenty-six percent of college women. So I mean, I mean that's just weird, you so know. That, like you, so that's weird. That, that, that would argue for actually like a a sample a generation problem. effect. Yeah, sample problem. Right. Yeah. So the thirty-two, and that's the one. That's the one area where it's a little bit. That's the one finding that we were surprised by. The rest of these all work in the, the way that you would expect um, in terms of the difference between high school and college. We think that what could be happening here is the parents reinforcing what they want to do. And so, like, if you are in college and your parents are not suggesting that you want to run for office because you're not interested in that, you might be less inclined to remember that when you were in high school, they did. So that's, but that's the one thing. But, for example, like, if you look at, um, you know, very competitive when playing sports, in high school, the college girls and the high school boys are roughly equal. It's not a, there's not a gender difference. When they get to college, the girls are about the same, right? You have a similar level of competition in playing sports. The boys' interest in being competitive when they're playing sports goes up. And that's the case across the various explanations. So they wind up navigating toward these experiences and being more competitive in them, taking more political science classes, acquiring more of the um, background things that we know are positively related to running. Now, that's not necessarily because if they had the choice in high school, they wouldn't have done so too. It could be that they didn't have the choice. It could be that, as you were suggesting, when they get there, they enter this gendered environment. There are certain things that men versus women are doing. There are certain roles that are reinforced. And then, so it's not, they actually don't have the choices. This is sort of the path that they're then put on. And that path makes it easier for men to continue to accrue these ingredients that are positively associated with running. It would be cool to see your data where it's like you show it like this boys versus girls, boys versus, but it'd be interesting to see cohort effects within male and cohort effects within female, if you really think that there's a shift in environment <coughs> causing a difference. 
might be useful to break it out by women's only mm. colleges mm. or so colleges which have a woman president. Yeah, so or a major uh, football team or something. Right. I mean, also <laughs> if, if it is a narrow space of opportunities, <laughs> then the role model effect might be really key right. so in shaping um, these opinions. So only 2% of the sample respondents went to single-sex high schools or colleges. Right. Um, it exert, that did not exert any kind of effect, but we're talking about 98% of the sample that did not. Right. We had found the same thing among adults, um, where probably it matters, but because so few people in a national sample of potential candidates or of these students go to those kinds of schools, right. it's difficult. We did not find differences in... Um, sort of the stature of the college or the ranking of the college. Um, but in a lot of ways it makes sense because we're not necessarily saying, you know, do you want to run for governor, right? We're saying have you ever even thought about running for office? It can be any kind of office. Um, we ask specifically about 12 different offices. Um, and there are gender gaps that are consistent with what we've seen in the population where the gender gap grows as you climb the political career ladder. But it doesn't seem to be driven by the elite status of the university. So we tried, we coded for female senator, female governor, female member of Congress, percentage of women in the state legislature, a female mayor in your town, nada. Um, and the political science research has also found that sometimes those things can affect political discussion among women during a heightened campaign environment, but generally not that much more. Um, so these broad role model effects tend not to vary. Now, I think in part that's because most people don't know, right? Like, I mean, the average 13-year-old has no idea who his or her member of Congress is. The average adult does not know who his or her member of Congress is. So for role model effects, it may be sort of the presence of women at the national level. And in that case, there's not going to be any variation within the United States if those are the role models that people are thinking about. So we don't uncover evidence for the role model effect, but we don't sort of say, oh my gosh, let's never talk about role models anymore. They're, they're, they're useless. Right, but it's it's difficult to identify that effect. that I was thinking about was the difference of a guy's experience in college and maybe the role that that would play. And I would say that as a freshman walking onto a college campus as a guy versus a girl, as a girl, you're still invited to all the parties. As a guy, that stratification of society begins immediately. And you start thinking about exactly what you talked about, the marriage market. And how do I, how do I make myself a better candidate for a wife somewhere down the line? And I, I say, well, I need to be a leader. I need to be something that stands out. I'm already in this college. How do I, how am I something better at the tail end? As a girl, you still get to go to the parties. As a guy, if you're not in the group, you're at home. So, I mean, you start thinking about those things. I don't know. 
<laughs> I think um, you can actually test some of that. I mean, my yeah, thinking yeah. has been actually exactly evolving some of your thoughts with the data that you have. So here was my thought. I mean, I'm building on Linda's comment on well, you know, what happens when you go into get into college. And the question is, do women experience any other boost in ambition? So for example, you have these variables already principal. Do they want to become, you know, maybe they want to become CEO? Do they want to, is there anything else that college signals to women that would have anything to do with career aspirations? Maybe there's nothing, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that would be very sad. Mm -hmm. But I am trying to think, you know, is it really politics or is it generally career aspirations? That man experience a boost um, when entering college as a signal that you are one of the leaders in the world. Mm -hmm. And for women, this might not be happening or might not be happening just in politics. So you can use the can variables that you already have yep. and look at that. That's a great point. But can I, I have um, just a comment? My question is, just, um, and you probably don't have an answer because I don't imagine things like that have been studied in other parts of the world. But if there were, do you know anything about you know differences across countries? Because you're saying in 95th, surpassed by 95, uh, 94 countries or 95 countries now, do we have any sense of why this is not happening, or is, is this happening also, or? So I don't know of literature that examines um, political ambition among young people. I mean, we were, we when I we did the canvas. That, that was my suspicion. Right, we had no idea. Now, the, obviously, the two big predictors of a nation surpassing the United States, separate and apart from ambition, have to do with quotas yes. or the strength of the party system, yeah. right? So there can sure. be, obviously, institutional rules or constraints that either facilitate or depress the likelihood that you're going to see yeah. female candidates. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's why even in some very patriarchal systems, we have far more women sure. in politics than, than mm -hmm. in ours. Mm -hmm. But um, so, so my argument for studying the US in particular is that because we have such an entrepreneurial candidate emergence process, mm -hmm. and because we're never going to be in a position where we're going to strengthen the parties so that we would have a party list system, or God forbid, pass a quota, Right, we really are relying on the individual to come forward as a candidate. So the importance of understanding the way that socialization or political recruitment or self-assessed qualifications factor into that decision-making process and identifying where that begins is probably key for generating any degree of eventual parity because we're not going to be in a situation where a rule could be passed to lead us down that path. So a, a question is what kind of interventions are needed to kind of upend this, this process. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the study that Nan Cohane did at Princeton, but the findings are very similar to what you're finding. Um, Princeton has been co-ed for 40 years. In the first 15 to 20 years when Princeton was co-ed, the young women were getting the top prizes. They were taking on leadership of all the major organizations, and it was women's moment. Over the past 20 years, that's been totally reversed. And when they interviewed women, women said that they would prefer to be number two in an organization. They felt that they could do more and have more of an impact by being number two. So Princeton was very concerned about that. A woman president had you know, instituted a number of changes around gender, gender in the sciences. And they found that when they started supporting women more, the, the other thing that women said is no one encouraged them and that their friends discouraged them, particularly from running for office. So they found that if they shifted that and faculty started encouraging women, uh, there would have an impact, and apparently it has had an impact, so, which is interesting. Right, so the mo I, I think the best thing that we can do is encourage, right? We also know among adults, among the lawyers, business leaders, um, educators, and elected officials that we've surveyed and interviewed, 
political recruitment is the easiest way to close this gap. And the effects of being encouraged to run by a party leader, elected official, or political activist are actually not that much bigger than the effects of receiving encouragement from a family member, colleague, or friend, which indicates that even these informal mechanisms can play a big role. You don't need a formal electoral gatekeeper to say you should think about running for water board, right? So obviously, if we could do that on a college campus, that could help. The problem, though, I think, and, and the thing that uh, organizations and groups that are interested in developing policy and implementing policy need to really address, I think, is the, are these data, right? That 40%, women are 40% more likely to say that a charitable organization is the best way to bring about change, and men are more likely to think that the acquisition of political power in an elected way brings about that change. So even if we're encouraging women to be politically active, to be politically involved, to care about their communities, the next step needs to be to translate that activism into running for office and not just saying you need to get involved, you need to make a difference because there are different ways to make a difference and there's nothing to suggest that women aren't as interested in men in doing so. It's that they do want the number two position or they want to work behind the scenes or they want to work for an NGO. And there's nothing wrong with that except I do think that it's incumbent upon us to at least suggest that there are certain things that you can do when you have a seat at the table as an elected official that you cannot do in these other positions and then you need to make a choice, all right, are those trade-offs worth it? Well, I think the trade-off is the key piece because I think one of the things which is interesting is are we measuring what women want or what their sort of proposition and equation is? And I think it's about how do we revamp the mechanisms so that they think the costs aren't as high, however they may define those costs at different periods of time in their life, um, which is really interesting. I think that's right. And I also think that we have a responsibility, and the media in particularly, I think have a responsibility to disseminate the, a few key facts, right? That first, when women run for office, they generally do just as well as men. That changes a calculus. Like, that can change it. Second, that there's no rampant media bias against women when they run for office. We can all identify some examples, but that is not the environment that you are going probably to find yourself in. Third, we have a new, Richard and I have a new paper coming out in the Journal of Politics. Family roles and responsibilities do not affect thinking about running for office. Now, they might affect whether you get into this candidate eligibility pool in the first place. They might affect whether you think that you can become a lawyer or a business leader or an educator or a political activist. But once you find yourself in that position, it's become sort of the new normal for women, not the good normal, but the new normal <laughs> that they're able to balance you know, 177 different jobs and that voters don't punish them for doing that. So letting them know that it's possible and letting them know that there are not necessarily electoral disadvantages associated with those choices, I think is a quick way to at least begin to chip away at perceived trade-offs. That's not to say that there aren't very real ones, and the fact of the matter is women still are 10 times more likely than men to be doing the household tasks in childcare. But while they're carrying the laundry basket, they're also thinking about how they can bring about environmental policy in their community. organizes the entire undergraduate experience from Sunday, Saturday afternoon to, you know, Friday, uh, to Saturday morning. And the other 
is the community building experiences, the car washes, the fraternity and sorority life, and actually those are totally gender. So the, you know, the male path is through competitive sports. Every one of those teams is on television, right, and so on. And the female path, where I saw leadership being exerted, was on all those community charitable philanthropy kind of things, right? And it's remarkable because it's like the paths barely cross maybe on Saturday nights, right? <laughs> right? For some but of that's, But that's where women are actually getting their leadership experiences in the kind of charitable work on campus. And now that I think about it, yeah, of course, they were two completely different career paths to the top in those universities. I, I think that's a good point. The something, data that I didn't show you, we, um, by uh, extracurricular activity, we asked them about a variety of different activities and whether they held leadership roles. The aggregate level, the aggregate number of leadership roles didn't vary, right? right? So they were just as likely to be leaders. But when you look at the political organizations, that's where you see the divide. It's not on any of these other things. It's on college Democrats, it's on college Republicans, it's in student government. Um, it's for working for other candidates and elected yeah. officials. And so I think that's exactly, I think that's right. And I hadn't thought about it as these two paths, but I, I think that's consistent with this broader, with this broader story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing uh, how the university came to the wherever it is now is glorifying the sport, you know, artistically it's a medical, medical work, you know. The sport is a physical work, and the, of course it's interesting, the very, aspect of the nation and, and, and for that aspect. So, but you know what? This is what is where, where the where women uh, do the charity. I think that is more important for the nation if it is than the sport if they said just teaching how to fight how to be athletes and those who think that matter. That should not be of the society in, in, in those discriminations of men whatever it is, you know. It, it, it really it is a disaster for completely Women in the sports and the women in the charities. I think that is more productive for the society. So what I what so what I would say is, if, even if it is more productive for society, if there are systematic gender differences leading women to one path and men to another, and that ultimate, and we know that sports or competitive experiences are related to running for office. Mm -hmm then we have to figure out what we're going to do because there are very real consequences for both descriptive and substantive representation in our elected positions. And so, um, so I mean, I don't necessarily disagree that we sometimes have wrong priorities or the activities that we advocate as the most valuable aren't necessarily the most valuable. But if these activities can propel men to have the confidence or can reinforce the confidence that they already had, that makes them think, oh, I can also be governor. And women are not getting any kind of comparable message, and instead they're working behind the scenes. That can carry real ramifications for for what we do. Just, um, just one point. So that means that the society is reinforcing the wrong, the negativity, for, which is not it's very important for the society, instead of the reinforcing and giving uh, credit for the women who are doing the charity, the taking care of the whatever they do really. Building the nation, so that that have to change the way they look at the society. You know, they, we need to teach people truth. You know, truth is very important. If we just go in the in the, in the sports, wherever wherever they do, get a lot of money. That is that's not really appropriate. I mean, you know, 
this is just an observation, not a scientific data point, but I've just gone through all the countries I know. I actually think the US is an outlier in terms of competitive sports. I don't know any other country. Maybe Australia is the only other country I can think of, which does this. I mean, there's not really, I mean, I, I know no European country where competitive sports takes place at the college level. So that's just as an interesting observation. But my question is a different one. My question is, I was struck by the language, which often um, is about running for office. Is it the running that women don't like, or is it the holding? So we asked about, and we've done this also with the, so when we did the first study in 2001, it was all about running. And so then when we did the, when we did it in 2008, we divided it up into running and holding because we thought, well, maybe they don't like the idea of a campaign, yeah. but like they think they're qualified to hold office. No. You know, follow it. <laughs> and so here we asked too, which of these jobs do you think you'd be good at? Like oh, even if you, so we asked it in lots of different ways. Yeah. Even if you, like you could choose right now, you don't have to do anything, like you're in this position. And it's pretty, it's pretty consistent. So I think that what happens is, you know, we think about political ambition sort of in two stages, right? It has to occur to you, and then you decide whether you want to do it or not. It'll occur to a lot of people, and then they'll decide, I would rather vomit, right? And so they're not going <laughs> to pursue that track. And then there are people that are like, okay, that doesn't sound so bad. Um, I think that first stage is where your overall sense of self-efficacy matters. That second stage is where the, ugh, the idea of campaigning is just something terrible. But if it doesn't occur to you in the first place, you're probably not writing it off because of, the campaign, it's your own, it's your own general self-doubt. And Jennifer, follow up on the flip side of that. You early on talked about how high school students' suggestion of what they wanted to do mapped very well to what they chose to do. The flip side of this is trying to remember the papers that I've read about whether or not women like serving in office. I mean, here we are, always trying to get more women in. What's the other side? Do we have good data? I, I can't think so off the top of my head of anything that's... Well, so the indirect data would suggest that women are just as likely as men to seek re-election. Right. Right? So if they don't like it, then they at least have a higher threshold for enduring it. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I guess that's kind of the best. Yeah. The other thing is, keep in mind that to get assessments of do you like serving or, you know, how, to, how fulfilling is it, you're now... A politician. So, you know, no, I hate this every single day. I go to the Capitol, I hate my colleagues, I hate the work, right? You get some people that leave office, like people like Lincoln Chafee or Olympia Snow who will say, it just got too terrible and I didn't enjoy it anymore. But um, they also, I mean, you know, he's governor of Rhode Island now, things worked out okay. I, it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit tricky, but so I think the best gauge is are you just as likely to seek re-election? Um, there is some evidence to suggest that women retire, women are more likely to retire when they hit a career ceiling, which means they've sort of maxed out in terms of their leadership and there's nothing else for them to aspire to in a position of power. Um, but Which ironically would demonstrate more ambition. Right, because they feel less. like they've flattened. So, so right. I don't think that, um, I mean, they might not like it, but they're not telling us. myself. I'm new here. I'm Marianne Moana. Um, I'm visiting here for two days and I'm the, um, uh, I'm the director of the Brussels office of Finnish trade unions. I'm a trade unionist of my background. So I'd, I would like to bring an example of, of the Finnish um, society. Like we don't have any quotas on political elected positions but we do have quotas on non-elected uh, positions. So, um, and this is um, for all uh, public uh, and especially for the local level for municipalities that they um, that the well, that you need to have at least forty percent of both genders in any committee. So what we have seen in the past twenty years is that actually, for instance, at the uh, at the municipal level, 
many many city councils are nowadays gender balanced. For instance, in Helsinki, in the in the capital of Finland, there are actually more more women in the in the city council than than men. So so it has actually been a, a very effective way of uh, of promoting, uh, I would say, political socialization at the at the municipal level, especially. So what would you say about these kind of methods that uh, that promote uh, women's rights? I have a related example. I've just been collecting data on India where one party, I think I hinted at this when I gave the talk here, where one party instituted an intra-party quota, not for candidates, but for party organizational roles. Uh, and they said there's going to be 30% women and 33% women in all these roles. And what I find now is that that does lead to an increase in candidacy. So there was no quota for candidacy. There was there was no there's no official path that this is the path to candidacy. Nothing like that. But mm. you get women in somehow, mm. in mm. any kind of way, and it seems to affect how that they will get into politics. So the Democratic Party has a quota, right? So the Democratic Party in the United States has a quota: fifty percent of the delegates have to be women. Mm. Mm. Hasn't worked out so well in terms of <laughs> generating um, more ambition. But I do think that appointments as a mechanism to ultimately lead to elective office could be a route, and I haven't seen systematic data on that yet, but you know, a lot of different organizations and a lot of different women's groups in the various states are engaged in a broader project called Appoint Her, which is to get governors to take pledges. This was sort of the, I mean, you're in Massachusetts, you know binders full of women, right? So the, the real story behind binders full of women could be told as, well, if governors are actually presented with, you know, if there are Republicans, a binder full of qualified Republican women to appoint, or, you know, if it's a Democratic governor, a binder full of Democratic women's CVs, not actually like women in the binders, um, <laughs> that could ultimately lead them to appoint more women, right? Because it, it, the logic just being that they're not thinking of these women because they don't operate in their circles. Those women are going to get into politics. They're going to acquire the connections, the political proximity, the access to gatekeepers that might then facilitate an electoral um, candidacy. And that, that could be a path. So it's possible that appointed office is another path. Um, and the fact that you can get in without campaigning would mitigate some concern about, well, maybe it's these dynamics that we can't really tap, but it's this just general um, distaste for a campaign or running for office. And so I think that we're going to, I mean, I'm, I know um, there are two graduate students at Brown right now who are working on, um, who do women in bureaucratic politics. And I know that they're collecting some data on, over time, what percentage of women served in different um, governor's cabinets, what percentage of women served in the federal bureaucracy, and then what did these women ultimately do. So we'll begin to, I think, track a little bit about whether appointments lead to elected positions. Um, so can I get your, I don't know if it'll be the closing, but I, you ran for office I did. after doing this research. And we've got a number of students who are in our Oval Office program who are kind of contemplating doing something like that. So could you talk a little bit from a, a personal perspective yes. about what kind of these findings, maybe how they helped you gain the courage to run and what you learned from some of that? Yeah, so I ran in 2006 in the Democratic primary in Rhode Island's second congressional district against a popular incumbent because I hadn't read, you know, or I didn't believe the literature that suggested that the incumbency advantage really existed. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so it was a very, very Democratic district. I thought he was a bad Democrat. There was no Republican that would ever run in the general election. So this was one opportunity to knock out a bad Democrat and replace him with a good one. Um, and so I had just finished writing the first book. I had just finished writing It Takes a Candidate. And for me, the messages that resonated the most were, were two. The first was that 
family roles and responsibilities might not preclude somebody from thinking about running for office, but I think they do complicate the situation. So I was 31 years old. I was single with no children. I didn't have to worry about anything. I had a full-time job at Brown that I was able to keep, and then I was also able to run for Congress full-time. And being able to reconcile those two positions didn't seem that difficult. But that was in part because when I went home, I didn't have to ask a husband how his day was or feed a fish even, right? Like, I had no other responsibilities. And so something that I always tell people is that you have to figure out and think very systematically about how you're going to do that and what you would then fit in. I think if you already have two jobs, meaning a home life and a professional life, politics seems like a luxury, and it's more difficult to incorporate that. If you have a political career and your regular career, and then you decide that maybe you're going to start a family and have children, it's a lot easier, I think, to integrate that in because you've already managed these other two, right? And it seems like an important enough thing to integrate. Now, I should say that I did not do that that well. I'm now 38 years old. I'm single with no children. Um, I'm looking, so if anybody has any suggestions, <laughs> you should let me know. Um, I mean, as long as, at, th at this point, like, if he can read, we're good. Um, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, but so I, so I think the family roles dynamic is something that started to resonate in terms of what's feasible. The second, and I think the most important message that I would give to anybody thinking about running for office is, you're qualified. If you ask somebody ahead of time if they think they're qualified to run for office, they might say no because they don't realize and that it takes about two weeks to develop the qualifications that you need. We know that women are very, very skilled in terms of their backgrounds, in terms of their credentials, in terms of their policy expertise. The qualifications gap really emerges because women are less likely to think they have thick enough skin, women are less likely to think that they could navigate the nuances of a political arena, and the fact of the matter is you can because you have no choice once you throw yourself in. And the story that I always tell is when I announced that I was running for Congress, I called my parents and they'd always been supportive of everything I'd ever wanted to do and they said no. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? You can't tell me that I'm not, I'm, I'm, no, I'm like announcing tomorrow, like the newspaper's coming, like I'm running for Congress. And they said, no, no, no. And I said, why? And they said, because you cry a lot, and people are mean a lot, and we don't want you calling us a lot, telling us how mean people are. And so I said, no, 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 I promise that's not going to be what happens. And so for about two weeks, I did cry a lot. But that's about how long it takes to develop the thick enough skin that you need, because you might not realize it before you throw your hat into the ring, but once you do, you're running for all of the right reasons. You're running because you care about the issues. You're running because you think you're gonna be better than the incumbent or your challenger. You're running because you care so much about bringing positive change that if somebody is mean to you, and I should also note, 99% of the people are not, and they're so excited to meet somebody who's actually taken a risk and has thrown their hat in, that the 1% who are just become amusing stories 10 years later, which I'll tell you one right now. So to demonstrate how you can develop this thick skin, it's three or four days before the election. We had raised you know, several hundred thousand dollars. We were on TV all the time. There was nothing left to do except get out the vote, which we did not do successfully because voter turnout in my race was 9%. But pushing that aside, so it's three days before the election, and we're campaigning at all of these um, grocery stores that are near polling places so that we could tell people, you have to turn out to vote, and also, look, it's literally right there. Like, this is where you need to go tomorrow or in two days. And so I'm standing in this parking lot encouraging people, and we had been on TV, so I was recognizable. And this woman parks her car, and she comes running up the lane at the grocery store, and she's so excited to see me, and she says, don't worry, don't worry. And we're surrounded by a lot of people, and she's quite loud. Don't worry, don't worry. And she comes up, and she hugs me. And I think this is so nice. She's going to say, don't worry, you're going to win your race, or don't worry, you ran a great campaign. And she says, don't worry, you don't look nearly as fat in real life as you do on TV. And so I said, thank you. <laughs> and, 
friend of mine recently told me that I should have said, oh my God, neither do you. <laughs> but when I said thank you, that's when I had that eureka moment. If you would have told me before I announced that I was running for Congress that somebody would say that, I would have cried in anticipation of the Congress. <laughs> but you are so invested, you're so passionate, and you're doing it for all of the right reasons that a comment like that becomes nothing except something to brush off and tell a room to people about <laughs> later on, right? And so I think that's the message, and that's the most important thing I learned from the research and my own experience, which is that a lot of these seemingly very, very deep-seated fundamental causes of this gender gap could, ironically, be mitigated substantially if women just went for it. Right? And so the problem is, how do you tell them that, no, it's not this bad, if they've convinced themselves that it really is? But so I would tell any of you that have thought about it, I promise, like, the good outweighs the bad, like, a hundred times a day. Awesome. Well, I think one thing that we do, one thing that we do is invite people like you so, that, you. Uh, so that people can hear it. Um, we hope you'll rejoin us uh, next week. Uh, Jane Waldfogel is a professor of social work and public affairs at Columbia. is going to talk about work-family policy in the U.S. So thank you very much. Thank you.